0: What up, everybody? This is Serato Unscripted, back again for another episode. I'm uh, really excited about today. Um, yeah, I'm I'm am a really big fan of this book. Uh, this book, Dilla Time, um, which I read in three days. The probably the fastest I've ever read a book in my entire life. It was just a page turner. I couldn't put it down. And uh, we're very lucky to have today's the, as the today's guest of the author of Dilla Time, um, which is the life and afterlife life of Jay Dilla, the hip hop producer that reinvented rhythm. And if you haven't read this book yet, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, if you love music at all, if you're just if you a big fan of Dilla, I mean, it's a must read, but if you just love modern music, this is a great study and, and, and uh, document documentation of the history of modern music. Um, it's a great insight just to the way, it, you know, music perda- uh, changed in our lifetime. So, uh, you know, with one of the most important producers of our generation. Um, so without further ado, um, I'd like to welcome our very special guest, Dan Charnas, to the show. Welcome, Dan. Pro. Great to have you here, man. Great to be here, man. I have
1: mic envy right now. Your <laughs> mic is 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 so much nicer than my mic. I don't know if you can see it, but you know, you're the professional and I'm just <laughs> I'm just visiting.
0: Not at all, man. I think that I think you got the thriller mic. That's the Michael Jackson classic right there. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Um and we got hey, we got great people in the chat today. Thank you everyone for tuning in right now. Pitone, uh, great to see you here, Kid Koo. We got burnt CDs, DJ genre, a new beat band. A lot of people I see. Um, some someone uh, from from the book in here actually. DJ Brainchild is here. Shout out Brainchild. It's great to have oh, you here. Oh shit! All right. Um, and we got Master Lee, Scamster jams in the house. A lot of homies I know. Uh, Low Key's gonna be coming in real hot, real soon. So, uh, thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, now, Dan, you were just recently out in LA, right? You were doing a, a couple uh, interviews out there
1: yeah i you know obviously omicron really kind of killed uh any plans for travel in february but uh i was really excited to kind of get back to la not only because i had you know lived there for 13 years but it really is the locus of a lot of love for james you know for dilla uh and his friends out there were actually (laughs) my friends you know I, i actually moved out of la the same month that, that Jay Dilla moved to LA. Um, so a lot of the folks that I knew from back in the day, whether it be red or Babu or, or, uh, or Brian cross, you know, really embraced him and made a home for him in LA in many ways that Detroit never had. So it was like, so good to be in LA. Um, and it was like, it brought, it kind of brought the book home for me in a way that made it even more real For me to actually be in a room with people who had read the book or were excited to read the book Um, yeah so it was it was awesome
0: yeah i mean one of the specific spots i saw you were at was uh rap cats which is uh as most people probably know here is madlib and egon's record label and and store right
1: my first time there and also my i i mean you know listen I've been out of the music game and certainly out of the production game for more than a decade, but it was really my first true record store day experience, which in L.A. rises to the level of a religious holiday. It's like it's like Hanukkah and Cinco de Mayo rolled into one in L.A. Really, it's crazy.
0: There's dancing in the streets. It, you know, very impressed. Yeah, it's a great shop too. I I'm, I've managed to go there myself. Um, they did um Jeff Jank uh, uh, gangster music. Uh, I think they had a compilation where they did all these really amazing um different art uh, art for the, the 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 this compilation that they did called Gangster Music. I think it was volume two, and they had you know all these producers and artists there. It was it's a really great hub if you're in LA. Um, now specifically, um, Rap Cats obviously like I said is Egon's label with Madlib and he plays a very central role you're talking about just what you're talking about coming to LA and you know Egon as a employee at stone's he plays a very very central role throughout this book especially in the afterlife of Jay Dilla um can you tell me like what was it like reconnecting with him and in person again well
1: with with Egon
0: yeah now here's the thing (laughs) I had never met
1: Egon uh until like the reporting of this book that's what's so crazy wow like my time in la had little holes in it i guess so i kind of left la before stone's throw really took off and i had been out of the record business actually and i was i was writing for tv i was doing writing comedy i was working for forest whitaker for a while so cool. that was like a blind spot but egon so important to this story uh you know a, a, among a real core cast of characters that were crucial um in not just the life of jay dilla but the afterlife and um just uh, a gentleman you know really good guy
0: yeah he's incredible and i know he actually put out a record for records record store day two i think it's the one um uh, east of harlem underground i think it is uh mm. they just re- reissued that one which is the one that dahi sampled for 21 savage it's a amazing record but yeah um yeah, he, I was really impressed with the way you talked about him and just the, the things he did, uh, especially... I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but if you, know, if you haven't read the book, but you know, Egon was really the one who, I guess, really took care of a lot of the affairs after you know, he passed away. And he was also instrumental in you know, helping um, you know, that, the, the J-Lib collaboration and, and all these things work with, uh, with Stone's Throw as well, right? Yeah, well, two things. I mean, obviously, as general manager
1: of Stone's Throw... Egon was instrumental in bringing all those projects in and home, mm. right? And that includes j that includes the production work that James did for other artists on the label. It includes donuts, and it also includes, in some ways, The Shining, too, even mm. though that was not on Stone's Throw. Egon made it possible for James to be at Dave Cooley's studio working on that record. Uh, you know, stone's throw regardless was a sort of a home base for James and Egon was a a very big part of that. But then after James passes, Egon begins to serve in about 2009 as the creative director of the estate. And what many people don't know, and I hope more people do start to know, is that Egon was part of a team that turned the estate from this, uh, Basically, cashless uh, entity that was in debt to Uncle Sam for over a half million dollars to a profitable, uh, you know, the profitable entity that it is now. That's a big thing.
0: <laughs> well, that was the thing I think was was so uh, astounding to me was well, yeah, the the way the affairs were in such disarray, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and yeah, like like you said, I think um, it's it's really no account of being an easy task to turn that around. Um, you know, especially when it seems like everyone was against him. Uh, a lot of ways, there was a lot of well, there's a lot of people going against it. it was just, yeah, I, I found that as a very interesting and cautionary tale for anyone in the music industry. Um, you know, anyone anyone who's creative, knowing that you know if you don't take care of your stuff, man, it, it's it leaves a trail of of, of disaster behind you. Yeah. But, um, look, I I just want to say, first of all, um, congratulations on the book release, you know, this year. I'm I'm thrilled to learn it also became a a New York Times bestseller. um, Never would have thought.
1: (laughs) Never. Like, that was like, what? (laughs) But thanks to y'all. I mean, really, like, um, that was a great, great honor and surprise. And, you know, writing a book is a lonely thing, man. So... You know when it finally hits home and it hits like that it just makes all those uh those lonely days at the desk uh worth it
0: absolutely and and you know what I, w- I was also really wanted to say uh thank you for putting together not only the the incredible book but also the playlist uh listening guide to listen along to it i found that this uh listening guide that you provided and i'm um, hopefully we can put a, li- a link in the chat um um it was like it was a really immersive uh, experience. Like, it really enhanced the, the stories. Um, it was also very, like, uh, inf- inf- informative because, you know, I've, I'd like to consider myself a pretty dedicated Dilla fan, but there were still things that I've, I've missed. And the way that you kind of... Um, the way that you explained a lot of the history before he was even born uh, at the beginning of the book, and you talked about the, the, the story of Detroit as well, uh, and then the, as the music's playing, you know, the perspective that you were able to provide through that was just... Uh, really amazing. Uh, Man, thank you for that because
1: putting that playlist together wasn't e- <laughs> easy either. So it's nice. you know. And for, for those who are interested, it is on the dillatimebook.com website. And you click the button that says listening guide. And the main listening guide is a YouTube listening guide. Because there's a lot of stuff that's not on the streaming services hmm. uh, that is on youtube not always quite legally but you know you won't find the
0: another batch beat tape on spotify or title thank you nina mendoza for posting that in the chat also want to give a quick shout out to dj loki and the raiders for coming in uh thank you very much for the raid um you know we're, we're we're working on twitch here so we got a lot of things multiple things going on at once which is really great i love that it's so interactive um now Speaking of, uh, you know, just listening guides and and, and so forth, what was your first introduction to Dilla on a personal level?
1: Okay. So my first introduction to Dilla was in the wake of Jay Swift splitting with the far side in 1994-95. And I was, I loved the far side. I actually, uh, you know, lost out uh, on signing them. No way. Uh, much to my own my own inaction. Back when I worked for Rick Rubin, I, I was living in LA at the time. And uh, I immediately like regretted it after I heard their album, you know, for the first time, how deep it was, uh, and the production was incredible. And then we heard that Jay Swift was leaving, and it was like, Well, what what what's the far side gonna do? Because Rick and I were focused on signing Jay Swift to a label deal. And we lost out on that one to Tommy boy fat house records went to Tommy boy. But in the meantime, I'm going to Mike Ross, delicious final, like, dude, what's the farce I going to do without Jay Swift. It's like, how can you have, it's like, you know, it was at the time, I suppose, imagining, you know, public enemy without the bomb squad really. Right. Um, you can't have one without the other. And Mike Ross said, Oh yeah, no, it's, it's great. We found this kid from Detroit named JD. And I was like, JD? Who's that? Detroit? No hip-hop comes from Detroit at the time. You know, it's 95. The only thing I knew of was Awesome Dre and the Hardcore Committee and then MC Breed from Flint. That was it, right? For at least as far as our the bi-coastal chauvinism of hip-hop went. Uh, and then I, the next thing I know, I'm at the House of Blues at the Far Side's uh release party for lab cabin and we see the video for running for the first time and it was that was just like oh oh jd right then he became you know every every producer's favorite producer at that point um and
0: that that was sort of my first first exposure that's incredible and the way you talk about the story i mean there's so many amazing stories in here but specifically the way that you talk about running and the story with Fat Lip changing the drums um, again I'm not trying I'm really trying not to spoil this is for everybody who hasn't read right. the book it's all right but that story the way you talk about it the way that they got into like a fight a physical altercation because who was it slim mm-hmm. kid it was defending uh wanted wanted JD to have the beat the way it was and Fat Lip didn't like it so he changed them because he thought the the drum the the kicks erased were erased it
1: was. erased it from the tape you know so yeah so a uh, Trey invited Fatlip to step outside because he had disrespected
0: their guest, and it was a real fight.
1: That's <laughs> it was insane, a real
0: fight. <laughs> I mean, that's just like a very small part of like some of the crazy. Incre- crazy stories that are in this book, and you know, if you're a fan and you know these, if you know these songs, and like you're talking about, you know, uh, Bizarre Ride to the Far Side, you know, all these records and this 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 time, it's just these. These are just the most in, 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 uh, informative and inspiring stories to, to, to get kind of behind the scenes. Now, on that, actually, uh, speaking of you know, your story with Dilla, it goes beyond just obviously being a fan and, and trying to sign the far side even, which is mm-hmm. all news to me, by the way. This is fantastic to hear about your time with Rick Rubin and, and signing, um, trying to sign the far side. Um, but your story with Dilla, you, you, know, you talked about, I saw it on Twitter, you were talking about working with um, the artist Chino XL. Can, mm-hmm. can you can, do you mind sharing that story with everyone? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, so Chino was an artist that I signed, I actually wanted to sign him back when I worked for Profile Records, back when I lived in New York. Um, he was part of a duo called Art of Origin, or the Art of Origin. And his partner was Kerry Chandler, who folks wow. now know as the incredible Deep House producer. And he was an incredible Deep House producer even then. But he had this whole other side to him. You want to talk about another great producer on the level of a J.D. or a Jay Swift. Kerry Chandler as a hip hop producer. Man, y'all do not know what you haven't heard, like what you're missing with that. And, you know, but Kerry knew who he was. And that's the that's the greatest thing in life. He knew that he was he wanted to be in house and did not want to be in hip-hop. It took us a while to get there. In the meantime, Chino was kind of orphaned, right? He didn't have his, he was signed as part of this group. uh, But we didn't really have any more money to record him. And, you know, Rick didn't like to spend a lot of money on hip-hop. So it was, it was, it was a difficult time, but Chino saved his own career. Like Chino kept going into the studio making records and i kept finding a way to get money to put them out uh and then finally we completed an album in 1996 which is which was his debut album here to save you all and thanks to chino's talent and a number of good friends across the country like king tech and sway the wake up show chino actually sold a respectable amount of records enough to warrant a second album this time we had a budget like we had a budget to work with anybody we wanted so it's 1998 1999 and i'm like chino we gotta go work with jd because by this time you know not only has you know stakes as high and all that come come out but now we're hearing the sometimes remix now we're hearing um oh man uh uh find a way you know just like these incredible incredible beats so i get this beat tape from jd oh man and uh it is what you folks now call another batch right that was the tape that i got and i made travel plans for us to go to detroit in the summer of 1999 we flew out there we stayed in the Athenaeum, which was at the time kind of the only showbiz level hotel (laughs) in Detroit, uh, and, uh, called the house, spoke to Ma Dukes, you know, she gave me directions out there. Uh, I still have those directions. Like I think I posted them in that thread on, on Twitter, like writing down, you know, three one Oh three Nevada. And in our little rental, we all, we drove out to the corner of McDougal and Nevada Kona gardens. We knocked on the side door, the light door on the side, Opened the door, Go down the stairs to the left. There's common sense. Like, why why is common sense down here? What's he doing down here? Of course, I had no idea that they were working on, like, Water for Chocolate at the time. Um, Records all over the basement. um, And that's how I occupied myself while I let Chino and JD vibe a bit. Although, I did have one moment where there was the one question I wanted to ask JD. And that is, you know, how do you get your bass tones? Like that was my nerdy producer question. Like of all the questions I coulda, woulda, shoulda asked him knowing what I know now, that's what I want to ask him. It's a good question, Dan. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you, thank you. (laughs) But, you know, so I ask, so Chino's standing behind the bar. He had his drum machine set up on a little bar, and Chino's standing behind the bar with James, and I'm standing near Common, and I'm like, "So, just I got one question: How do you get your bass tones?" And Chino, motherfucker, he says, "Don't tell him." It's <laughs> a good. Like, thing. why did you, why did you, why did you block me like that? Like what? Like what? Why? Why? Like that was our relationship, me and Chino. We were just, you know, uh, always kind of uh getting in each other's getting in each other's way in sort of a, I guess a funny way, but so that was it. you know, we hung out there, we went to Mongolian barbecue with common and uh JD. Chino remembers us getting into a, like a little fight with the people who worked there. I don't remember that at all. I just remember running my mouth telling JD about how we got kicked out of Canada the previous night, and JD's just listening, and I'm just talking. Again, another huge mistake. Uh, Then we go to Studio A in Dearborn, which is where uh, Dilla basically did all of his great, great recordings in Detroit. Um, And that was it. You know, it was a very, very quick um, couple of days in Detroit. But the indicative thing for me is I brought my camera to Detroit but I left it in the hotel when it was time for us to go see JD because I wanted to take pictures of us at the Motown museum, because to me at the time, dumbass that I was, that was the history Motown Museum. Oh, we're going to sit in the snake pit in studio. A. And like <laughs> I didn't realize that I was actually experiencing history at the time, a really important history. I didn't realize that I was with Coltrane, right? Yeah. I didn't actually realize even the depth of his rhythmic sabotage until I was mixing the album six months later and listening to the song Don't Say a Word, you know, the song that became Don't Say a Word over and over again. And like, something wrong with them hi hats? What is he? What's going on with those hi hats? It felt something felt warped. And I, I was so weirded out by it that I actually took. The 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 file and I loaded it into my digital audio workstation, which was at the time digital Performer. I don't think anybody oh, uses yeah. that anymore. I know what it is,
0: but yeah, no one uses right. it anymore.
1: So I put it in, and I you know I I I put the waveform at zero and lined up the hi hats with the grid with the tempo, and the hi hats were perfectly aligned. I'm like, well, why do they sound swung if they're perfectly aligned with the grid? And that's when I saw it. I saw the rushed snare. He was rushing the snare. He was putting the snare a little bit too early. And I'm like, why is he doing that? Like, oh, so the snare coming early makes the hi-hat sound swung, but they're not? That was my first experience of what I now call dilatine. We didn't have a word for it then. It was just fucked up. It was just like, what? And then you start to hear this rhythm, right? That rush snare, especially. Later on, I think it was either that the next summer you hear uh, music soul child, his first single, just friends. Mm. And then you hear the blast Mm -hmm. high tech and Talib quality. All of these programmers are now starting to use these rhythms. And then of course, when D'Angelo's album comes out, it's the first time we're hearing traditional musicians use those rhythms. So, it was a slow, I'm, a, I'm slow, I'm too slow. I was too slow to be a great A&R person for sure. <laughs> you know, too, too slow to be a good journalist back then and slow to sort of realize what was happening in those, uh, you know, in those beats. But when I come around, <laughs> I come around with force. Yep. So hence the book. I know that's a long-winded uh, answer to your question, but
0: oh no, it's it's great, and there's little things in there I'd like to expand on too. And I think, like you were talking about, you know, how you know y- you weren't conscious of the fact that you were at, at a, a moment in time that was gonna, you know, then therefore, you know, you were with a, a master at at his peak, you know, at, at you know at his at his finest moments. Um, I think that's For real. Uh, yeah, all the questions I could have asked, <laughs> like really. But I do think that that's a, you know that's a product of of just circumstance you know we, sometimes we're not you know able to be you know as aware of that you know when we're having these moments sometimes we are I'm not cognizant of the fact that mm-hmm. these are really the, some of the most profound moments of our lives, uh, but it's so great that you've had that moment and have such a personal relationship to the story as well because, you know it's it's a hell of a story to have to tell I got to be honest with you um one of the questions actually you know um. I wanted to ask you was, you know, the legend and fandom around Jay Dilla is something people hold sacred. And, and you talk about that, you know, you address that in your book, Mm -hmm. you know, and even to the point, you know, where you, where you're talking about how, you know, other people, well, criticized him for it, but also were really, you know, elevating him and, and giving him that platform and, and showcasing that, the people that really loved it and saw the, the, the brilliance of it early on. Um, but you know, was it a challenge to kind of honor that, you know, um, to write the book and 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 to kind of take on that responsibility, it was scary as hell. <laughs> I bet <laughs> because uh, Dilla
1: fans are are tough, man. Right? You know, they have a there's a religiosity to Dilla fandom, and and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. And I I, I mean, look, there are folks who are very religious about sort of the mythical side of Dilla, and then they are the Dilla nerds who really do want to get everything right. And so it's my job as a journalist to make sure that I don't mess up. So, uh, my work definitely rests on the work of, um, you know, many dillologists, some of whom are on this call, as you said, right now, right. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do, uh, what I do without them. I mean, you talk about, I've, I do not know if Brainchild's still on here, but you know, brainchild was the first person who told me, um, where the drum sample and players came from like Rapper's Delight, what (laughs) like, what? Like, so everything, everybody's in here. Everybody's here in this book. Um, but I was also cognizant that I did need to tell the truth, even if it went against some very cherished myths and sacred cows, so to speak. So for example, I got caught up in a little nerdy exchange on twitter a couple weeks back because there's this whole culture around dilla using the 404 right Yep. yep. uh which was the you know i guess after the 303 this roland little roland handheld drum machine oh uh hold on and one there second, are, Dan. yeah
0: you mean of course 404. <laughs> oh of
1: course you have it it's a
0: new one but it's yeah
1: I know, I know exactly well, if I were talking. in my office, I'd hold up my MPC right now, but <laughs> I'll, I'll chill. So anyway, you go on YouTube and there are all these videos of people reconstructing donuts beats on SP four Oh four, because they think that they were made on an SP four Oh four. Why do they think they were made on an SP four Oh four? Because Kareem Riggins in an interview said that he had one in the hospital, right? that was given to him by someone, either J-Rock or somebody else at Stones Throw. Peanut Butter Wolf actually says he did not give him that 404. Uh, but the, th- the problem is that two thirds of those donuts beats were made on a laptop at home using Pro Tools before he goes in back into the hospital. So there's resistance to that, right? Mm-hmm. No, Kareem said, so I called Kareem. I said, Kareem, did you see him make those beats on a 404? He said, no, I never saw him make beats on a 404. He had a 404, but I never saw him use it like that. At least that's what Kareem told me in our interview. But those things kind of die hard. So there is resistance to some truth. Another, Of course, another one is Got Till It's Gone. Right. Mm. Um, that's another one where people are going to die no matter what I say, uh, no matter what Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam say, no matter what Q-Tips says. J.D. produced that beat because he said he produced it. What's more fascinating to me is why would James lie? That's what is very revealing of character and the particular uh predicament that james found
0: himself in in 1998 1999 one of the things though that i think is so great about just that story and and you've talked about it a little bit before as well um you know how he people would really copy his stuff you know specifically you know talking about the blast and you talk about it in the book with the music soul child. he actually got yeah. upset you know he was like this sucks, and um, he's like, I think there's one point in there where, you, where he's, you've quoted him as saying, I'm never going to use a fender, never going to sample a fender Rhodes again. Yeah. And um, and I actually think this is one of the great things about Dilla. Uh, and if you're you know, if you're a fan, you know, you really should you should probably embrace that. And you know, it's one of the best things about his career is that he was constantly evolving. Um, and I love that you know, he he he, he is he's a real. Yeah, he's he really evolved, and you heard that, you know. You heard him taking on and 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 and, and, and changing things and taking different sounds, and um, you know, even his rapping, you know, like he he wasn't just trying to be like a facsimile of Tribe Called Quest for his whole career. He was, Mm-mm. you know, like Rough Draft and Donuts are very different albums. Welcome to Detroit, The Shining, you know, like they all have ca- their own character, and you and you kind of have to love them like that, you know. Um, and and that was that was actually one of the great things that you talked a lot about, um, and and specifically on donuts, you know, the, and the equipment used um, on that, the pro tools stuff was really interesting. Also, the way he, the way you you you, t- you tell the story about, uh, I think it's Jeff Jank, how he gave the, the you know the the tracks to Jeff Jank, then to edit, to make it yeah. longer, that yeah. was insane to me. Um, that. He would let go of that, uh, you know, of his creative, you know, these beats and give them to somebody else to edit. (laughs) Because it was just
1: a beat tape. Right. Like it wasn't donuts in major headlines. You know, we think of donuts now as this indelible work of art. And by the way, Jordan Ferguson, who wrote the donuts book, that story about jank, you know, is in there as well, not quite as detailed as it ends up being in my book. But still, it's like there was this sense of folks at Stone's Throw kind of let the myth expand, and Mm -hmm. I understand why. Right. Um, But yeah, uh, you know. Jank really had the nerve essentially, thank God, to ask James if he could help extend these things. And James needed the help, frankly, because yeah. he was in and out of the hospital and there was no other way to do it. Of course, when Jank gave me the original Donuts CD, like the one that Jank was given, I immediately again, what do I do? I take it into Ableton and I try to see if I can recreate the edits so I can figure out what he did so I can write about it in a way that that shows the mechanics of of what he did and it was very instructive he had a very light touch very
0: light touch i i really like that you talk about donuts in that way um and actually one of the audience had a question for me they asked uh, they would like to, mm. me to ask uh, in advance shout out dj lowkey he specifically said <clears throat> post donuts a lot of people credit this as the beginning of lo-fi along with new habes um what what's your take on the term and this labeling you know for. Oh, don't get me started on <laughs> lo-fi.
1: First of all, first of all, I think what we're talking about, right? At least let's talk about the first tradition, which is instrumental hip-hop, right? Instrumental hip-hop albums. Um, and I have to credit DJ Shadow and thank God I got to see him again at Rap Cats this past weekend and tell him myself Shadow started that shit, Mm. right? Shadow was the first person. I mean, it wasn't like the first, like, listen, Tony D, uh, poor righteous teacher's producer, he was putting out instrumental albums back in the day, but nothing had the commercial impact of introducing, right? The instrumental hip hop album is a product of the rabid culture of production that evolved in California in the 1990s, you know? California kind of takes what New, New York does, New York hip hop, and I don't know, purifies and extends it in really interesting ways. Um, you know, New York had B-boys, but in the early 1990s with the hip hop shop on, on Melrose and Fairfax, it, it turned into like high culture, like for real. It was really, really interesting. So Shadow sort of starts this, this uh, he sets the template. So it makes it possible for Madlib to do his albums and for Dilla to do his. Like it, it, it makes it commercially viable uh, or or envisionable for Stones Throw to put that album out. And then instrumental hip hop stays with us. You know, very shortly after Donuts comes out, Onra and uh, Quetzal um, in France put out Tribute, which is really really creative, important album that you can definitely hear the DNA of Donuts on. Um, And then the beat scene in Los Angeles, which unfortunately I wasn't there for. I was already back in New York getting my master's degree in journalism. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that was really about that lineage. And Dilla did it in a way that was in some ways very different from how Shadow did it because Dilla was was fracturing time and fracturing records uh, in Dilla-esque ways, shall we say. Also influenced by Mad Lib and by Kanye. Okay. There we go. So somehow, (laughs) somehow later on, this acquires the lo-fi label. Now donuts is not low fidelity. So I don't know what they're talking about. Maybe they're talking about dusty samples, right? Uh, but not everything that uses dusty samples is lo-fi so let's just let the name be lo-fi well does that mean instrumental hip-hop does that mean stuff instrumental stuff that you can study to does it mean you know what the youngsters call boom bap like what is it I don't i want to know what it means to you <laughs> man like what does it mean like what are we really talking <laughs> what are we really talking about here I'm sorry it's i'm being very cantankerous about it but no
0: no it, look I, I love it this is exactly what I think is a good about these sort of things, is where you get to talk about it like this, there is—I don't think it's—it's it's not really my place to, you know, be the official on it either. But you know, even Loki said, you know, he doesn't really believe so much of it as a genre. Um, but it—it—it it, it has been talked about a lot, you know, and it is has become a part of the discussion. Ninth Wonder has had, a, had a, uh, has weighed in on it, you know, on Twitter. I'm sure you've seen that. where well, he um, said,
1: No, I didn't. What did he say?
0: Oh, this is a couple years ago. Um, but yeah, he was really upset about it because you know he was he he was talking about it being. Uh, a whitewashing term, and you know we've seen this yeah. multiple times in in hip hop history and and popular music culture. Where
1: yeah, like when they say "whispercore" for Billie Eilish, I didn't ignoring even know. the fact <laughs> that Day exists. Forget about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think I think that um that's a, you know a very valid concern, and I I, I think that it's one of the good things that we do talk about. We do acknowledge that you know this has happened many times throughout you know music history where you know, uh, traditionally black music has, has been adopted and then, you know, whitewashed, become sterilized, gentrified. We can keep going on. <laughs> um, and you know, yeah, Dilla's music was very unapologi- unapologetically black music too. You know, I think, um, that's the, it's one of the things I loved about it, you know, um, yep. you know, uh, so yeah, um, but, it is interesting I, and I do, I, I can't really put my finger on it. And I think, you know, a, a lot of the discussion that does seem to happen is, you know, around YouTube culture and, you know, YouTube culture, TikTok culture is something that is, you know, it's not really our generation. I mean, I'm, I don't want to expose myself, but I'm, I'm 40, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in it. And I really, I'm really, you know, I take, I'm, I'm part of that culture, but it's definitely not the way I got into music, you know, I literally got into music probably the same way you did buying records, sampling on MPCs and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I'm old, I'm (laughs) watched, whatever. Um, but the, the, the next generation, they don't necessarily have that same, same connection to the music that, you know, where I literally bought my records to sample. Like I literally did these things, um, that Dilla did in homage to that process, you know, to Mm -hmm. be as authentic to that process. And, um, you know the anger generation they live on youtube they literally sample off youtube that is the that is the space that's their record shop if you will so um when you know algorithms and things get in the mix you know sometimes things uh get erased easier you know i think and and you know you see it with tiktok with the dances and you see it on youtube and um and I think that's the real concern with LoFi. fi from what, that's my take on it, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's absolutely right. You you just made me think about this in a different way is that what social media in particular does, you know, you've heard the term context collapse, right? I have. Um, and it it, 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 well, context collapse is all about sort of severing things from their history and presenting them just through the force of repetition as something different, meaning something different. So, uh, you know, when we talk about how lo-fi, just by people seeing it and seeing it and seeing it and having certain sounds associated with that label, it acquires that label, whether or not it makes any sense or not. Very similar to what uh, conservatives have done with critical race theory. You just label it and label it and label. Suddenly it is completely divorced from the context from which it came. Wow. <laughs> right. a An academic legal theory. Yeah. And meant to basically you know training people on the internet to think something else about it it's yeah, yeah it could be it's really rough
0: yeah i i do want to make a quick uh, statement though and say you know i know there's a lot of black people that do make lo-fi music and and i i think that that's a lot of the concern too within that community i'm not speaking for them of course but you know where they're not being included in certain playlists that are very popular and and these playlists are being run by non-black people you know uh Mm-hmm. Pur- purporting the music. So I think there, yeah, there, I mean, that's systemic stuff that we yep. acknowledge that happens throughout this music industry, but um, yeah, moving on from that, uh, if, if we can, um, the great thing I liked uh, talking about donuts is you talk about um, Kanye West and you talk about it in the book as well. Uh, there's a really interesting part where you're talking about where, um, you know, Dilla's career is, is having, um, I guess, a bit of a, a lower patch uh, you know it's mm-hmm. going down uh, on the roller coaster of life and you're you' we've been intru- you're introducing the the kanye West's introduction to the world and his prolific produ- uh, production reign uh, and he was mm-hmm. producing for slum village and I like that you talk a lot about Dilla's time in la and his relationship with produ- other producers like dr dre and kanye mm-hmm. West and the mm-hmm. the Kanye West donuts connection I've always thought that and I'm so glad that you talked about it that era of soul samples, you know, Dilla wouldn't wasn't really touching that early on, even though he was from Detroit, you know, Motown, and then he's really embracing that. And I w- always wondered, you know, is that a result of this this Kanye and Just Blaze, um, mm-hmm. you know, rise? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
1: I, I I definitely the proof is there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's a moment uh, in the book where Dilla is attending Slump Village's video shoot for Selfish. And Kanye is, of course, the producer and featured artist on Selfish, along with uh, some pianist named John Legend. <laughs> and Dilla's on the sidelines, and I think Scrap Dirty, who is one of uh, Kanye's associates, basically, is hanging out with Dilla. And he likes Dilla, but he says, Kanye's killing you, you know, in the, in the sample game right now, the sole sample game. Uh, and James says to him, "You think he's better than me, right?" And that's not only a question; that's a threat. Yeah. And uh, also, with the help of Madlib and J Rock in particular, James became familiar with Southern California's crate digging uh, track. And um, so the first salvo from Dilla post Detroit was the dill withers beat cd which people now call the motown tape um and so uh that really is like um him taking uh his own sampling technique in a in a different direction a much more jagged less rule bound direction um still again very much rooted in his uh, impulse to play with time but you know owing a lot to to madlib and and to kanye and in some way to rizza
0: too yeah absolutely it cannot yeah we've got to acknowledge rizza's massive soul sample uh, contributions we also got another legend in the chat right now i want to big, give a big shout out to to knowledge um <gasps> Shout out knowledge in the chat. Oh, word! Well, I've never had an opportunity to
1: to meet or to give uh, knowledge his props, but obviously, knowledge is mentioned in this book um, as being somebody very important in that lineage. So, so we've never met, but you have my respect, sir.
0: Absolutely, salute knowledge. I mean, talk about continuing the uh, the uh, the evolution of of the you know the, the sound and and the spirit and uh, inspiration of Dilla. Um, yeah, man we're so lucky to have knowledge and you know, making music in our generation, keeping that, uh, that vibe alive. And, you know, and and of course, you know, um, innovating, still bringing it forward. It's, uh, it's incredible. So thank you very much knowledge. Um, now, the other thing I had in here was, um, was uh, talking about the equipment actually and, and the, and the swing specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, now, now you, you teach at, um, at Clive Davis Institute, Now you teach the, a, a a class about this, the swing specifically.
1: Not about the swing specifically. I teach it. I taught rather this all, this is how this all started. (laughs) I've been teaching at the Clive Davis Institute since 2013. Okay. And my main job as a full-time professor there is to teach all the freshmen. When they come in, I give them the immersive course on pop music history. That's 150 years. Wow in 14 weeks, out of which you are supposed to be able to hold forth for three minutes in conversation on at least 150 terms, including figures, entrepreneurs, record companies, genres, whatever, and 150 different songs. And so what we do in that class over 14 weeks is we learn by making arguments about figures in history. Why was Louis Armstrong important? Well, Louis Armstrong, you know basically um imported uh helped to import the blues into jazz and he created he helped import this feeling of swing into jazz and he invented a new wave of american singing all those are arguments for Louis armstrong we make similar arguments for why was sister rosetta tharp important right what did she do that created a foundation for what became uh rhythm and blues and then rock and roll and as a guitarist how is she important Right. How did Chuck Berry learn from her? So on and on and on, we talk about why, why is Def Jam important? Right. What did Def Jam do? Well, Def Jam was the first record label that was by hip hop fans for hip hop fans. Right. Very different from Sugar Hill. Yeah. So when I started teaching that class in my final class, the 14th class, Jade, I always did a segment on Jay Dilla. Jay Dilla was one of those 150 figures, why because by that time slow ass dan had had articulated for himself right uh just by listening uh and thinking about this over the course of years oh what Jay dilla did is more than just not quantize right because that was the whole that's the big thing for me that was the like the the thing that made me the most angry especially when people who should know better would say that, oh yeah, I love that unquantized sound. Like, <laughs> are you, do you even know how an MPC works? Right. So that was the thing for me, like, no, he didn't just turn off the timing functions of his drum machine. He actually used them. And even that's not as important as what happened as a result of that te- those techniques, right. All the techniques he used whether it be quantizing or slowing deceleration of samples or misaligning grids on the MPC. What he did was he invented a third path in time field, a third musical time field that really did not exist before him. And that puts him on a level of a Louis Armstrong, a, a, a John Coltrane, a James Brown, a Billie Holiday, right? Absolutely. That's the level at which I wanted to talk about Dilla to that class. That little segment became a full-fledged seven-week Jay Dilla course in 2017, during which I took all 20 students on a field trip to Detroit for three days. And the reason I could do that is because about nine years after my first trip to Detroit to work with J.D., I married a woman from Detroit, so Detroit kind of became a second home for me. Uh, So I was able to use my relationships and connections in Detroit to make that happen. We did the class again in 2019, but by that time, I realized that there was, there's a lot of writing about Dilla and a lot of good writing about Dilla, but not a lot of good writing about the most important thing that he did, which is to literally pioneer this third time feel that 20 years later is used in jazz, in pop, and it's, it's, it's a feel that people using jazz conservatories and they're composing symphonies around it. So that was the germ of what was supposed to be a tiny little science book about music and ended up becoming, uh, that plus a biography, (laughs) a biography of him, a biography of rhythm, a biography of Detroit. Um, you know, I used to, I used to write for this, uh, this TV show on MTV called the lyricist lounge show. I don't know if you remember that from back in the day. And it was my first real professional comedy writing experience. But all my sketches that I wrote that I brought to the writer's room were four, four times as long as they should be. <laughs> so I got the nickname shorty long sketch, uh, in the, in that writer's room. So that's why my books are like 600, 400 pages. I just, I, You know, I don't think they're too long. No, I think they're just, I just, I I like to listen. uh, Hip hop artists and black artists in general do not get these kinds of treatments, uh, these kinds of deconstructions. Um, They get a lot of celebrity, tell all, biographical, but not a lot of serious musicology um, along the lines of say, you know, what Robin Kelly did for Monk or, you know what I mean? So that's what I wanted for Dilla I thought he deserved it and I thought Absolutely. the community around him uh, deserved it as well
0: I'm so glad you did too because yeah I think going back to what you said even early on where you didn't bring your camera to the studio it's one of those things where when you're living through the moment it's really hard to reflect upon how important those moments are and it's only now that we you know really can see the the legacy of of him and you talk about it in the book with hiatus coyote you know from Australia you know and we talk about you know the 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 Fonte and uh, Nicolay co- collaboration for an exchange. You're talking about Amazing. the the, yeah. the the expansion of the sound from Detroit and LA going around the world, uh, and and now is yeah. It, you know, I mean, it's it's more than. It's it's everywhere. It's it's affected everything, and um, you know, you hear house music. I mean, I you know, think about the disciples. You know, we've got people that are continuing that legacy, like we were talking about with knowledge. We have got K. Trinada. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the Robert Glasper. You talk about his story in the book, and yeah. you know, K. Trinada. You know, I don't even know if you consider him a hip hop artist necessarily. Specifically, he's doing house music and and you know, up tempo music with this 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 feel that's very informed from Dilla. And you know, he's from Montreal. You know, I mean, Montreal yeah. loves Dilla. Shout out Montreal. <laughs> And, and you know, the Potato Head people, some friends of mine, everyone is just like, this is the way we're doing our drums. We're trying to, you know, capture that feel, you know, that, that dilatime feel, you know, and it is, like you said, it's not just unquantized drums. It's so much more. It's it's a real feeling, but music will it never be- It used to kill me, bro.
1: It used <laughs> to kill me. I swear to God. And uh, he did not quantize. That was one of sort of three major techniques he used, but- Oh man, that I, so, you know, if you're gonna write a book and spend five years doing something, <laughs> there's
0: got to be some motivation. <laughs> that was a big motivation for me. Like, yeah, yeah, it's cool to hear actually more about you know the fact that you mixed and 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 you know your real involvement in in a lot of the music industry outside of this book, of course, which which I know, and and this isn't your only other your only book either, and you've written for TV shows, Um, you know. I wanted to talk actually a little bit about that, you know, because. We were talking about how you teach at Clive Davis. And in 2011, you wrote the book, The Big Payback. Um, There's a link in here I want to try and throw in the chat real quick. Um, Now, I haven't read this, so um, uh, forgive me, but I do really want to ask about it uh, because like we were talking about earlier, you know, one of the big takeaways from Dillatine was just how much of the business side of of his life was messed up, Um, you know, his taxes and and then of course the estate. and and you know there's a lot to be learned about that was is the big payback uh, kind of a more not an expose but more of a study of that of the of the music industry and and how the it's big, set up.
1: Big payback is uh, tracks the rise of the hip hop business from the first time anyone picks up a mic to make money rhyming into it in 1968 DJ Hollywood uh, through. 2008, 40 years later, when Barack Obama is elected on the cultural power of what has now become sort of the mainstream hip-hop and the hip-hop generation. So it's really about the people who worked behind the scenes to make hip-hop happen. It's not about the artists so much, although the artists are in there as characters. It's about the people who made those artists famous. Um, So... The main characters in The Big Payback are people like uh, Sylvia Robinson and Fab Five Freddy, Corey Robbins and Steve Plotnicki who founded Profile Records, Tom Silverman and Monica Lynch of Tommy Boy Records. It's about radio programmers like Keith Naftali who brought uh, hip-hop to FM radio in San Francisco and about Greg Mack who did it in AM, you know, earlier at AM radio in, uh, in Los Angeles with K-Day. So those are the the, the main characters, the business people, because again, there was the, if you're going to write a big book, there's gotta be a little motivation, a little anger. And one of the, one of the, the things that I saw in hip hop writing is there would be this real trope about the business, the industry, like it, writing about run DMC. It's like run DMC, uh, put out a record and they went gold and everybody loves them like no no <laughs> that nobody was ever going to hear Run-DMC or see them if certain people did not fight like hell to get them on the radio and on MTV. I want to hear that story, right?
0: It's cool that you say uh, that. Um because I read Russell Simmons' autobiography and he talks a lot about the early his career and and mm-hmm. that was totally inspiring uh book by the way. Yeah, well
1: if there's only a couple things I didn't know about Russell then that I know now uh, that would have really given that book a different spin.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, I bet. Um, but you obviously worked with, with Rick, you know, with Def Jam that that's yeah. really interesting. Um, you know, I mean, that must've given you a huge perspective of, you know, the early days of Def Jam.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I, what I could bring as a writer to that was a bit of lived experience, which is not always necessary for a good journalist, but it's certainly helpful. Um, and I also brought it a little bit to, to the Dilla book as well. Um, and part of that lived experience was, yo, that's not the way it happened. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I remember there was a point in the mid two thousands where people were talking about like hot 97 here in New York, the big hip hop radio station. You know, they just, they're just taking advantage of hip hop for money. And that's all they care about is the money. Like, do y'all know? that Hot 97 was not trying to play any of this stuff. (laughs) They had to be dragged kicking and screaming by people who work there, you know, who believed in it and the public themselves, right? Mm -hmm. But then why does a station like that, why does the playlist of a station like that get disconnected from a community? What does it, what kinds of things does it respond to? What kinds of things does it not respond to? Stuff like that. So yeah it's a but it's a big old book, so I don't blame you for not having picked it up or read it
0: oh well, I'm mean, definitely gonna get it because I mean three days man it's all it took me for Dilla time, so it was not not uh too long by any means maybe but... you'll need
1: six days you'll need <laughs> six days to be
0: yeah i'm I'm up for it i mean yeah and and it's cool to talking about k day and and hearing that because it is still yeah i mean in Vancouver where i'm I'm broadcasting from we we don't even have a like a dedicated hip hop station anymore we had one but it's still a problem you know what i mean it's insane mm-hmm. to me in this day and time that you know i mean we still hear it and i'm sure a lot of djs can attest to it still people are like don't play hip hop here i mean i literally had a conversation with somebody in la the other day where they said you know i got asked by the you know venue owner to to not play hip hop on the west side in la and i was like are
1: you kidding me like oh was that your tweet we talked about they're playing migos or something but
0: yeah. or oh, they, they, oh, yeah like but but not right okay yeah and it's just Stupid. that wasn't my tweet but it was the same story it's and we've oh, all yeah. had I think if you're a Dj you've probably been in that situation where it's like in 2022 we're still getting asked to not play hip-hop and it just doesn't make sense you know like no. but um you know without going down too much of a rabbit hole with that one um, <laughs> you know it's it, it, yeah Jairus, you know you know the story every Dj's had that you know what I mean? Um, yeah, had that problem, unfortunately. Me included, yep. Now, um, we're, 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 I don't want to take up too much of your time. We have a question that we ask every, every person um, who comes on the show, and I'd really like to ask you, uh, especially mm. since you've been part such a big part of your life, but what does the power of music mean to you? Oh, my goodness.
1: That is a very broad question, the power <laughs> of music. Well, look. I used to think that music was more powerful than I think it is now. I mean, I think music is an it, music is a music is a biological function, right? Of humans, we are music making machines, and we uh, we crave music. Music is a cultural thing; it's a social thing. So it helps us know who we are, and it helps us know who our people are. It's why I always thought that you know the power of hip hop in general you know if it's not watered down if it's presented as you know un in unadulterated right by um the concerns of white supremacy right you know well we can only play hammer on this station because mc hammer is safe and gangstar is not right if if once we got past that right i felt like we also got past the whole Like, that's why Eminem, in some ways, did not become another Elvis, right? Eminem didn't didn't crowd out Jay-Z. He didn't crowd out Lil Wayne. He didn't crowd out Drake. He was just one white face, albeit a very successful white face, in this larger community. I thought that that kind of multiracial, ecumenical uh, landscape had changed America. But, and it did, but it didn't, right? Because there's the other part, right? Uh, That this music is also bound up in capitalism. It's bound up in misogyny and patriarchy. Um, As much as hip hop led to the um, election, uh, you know, encouraged a generation to elect Barack Obama it praised Trump even more. Mm. Let's not forget that, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, hip hop, I always say, is a child of America. And America's Ill, and any ills that hip hop has are really America's ills. So, while I think the power music is still powerful, what I observed say with Kendrick Lamar, right, to Pimp a Butterfly. Brilliant landmark album and political but that album was not leading our social change. The kids who were listening to that album were leading our social change and yes, All Right as a song was very important to that movement but it was not the movement. Mm -hmm. The music is not the movement. The people are the movement. Mm -hmm. right? And for all the things that ail us right now, for all the 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 fascism and white supremacy and patriarchy that we're facing right now it is not going to be music i don't think that leads us out of that it's going to be it has to be us and music can help us march and music can help sustain us and music can help us communicate but we can never think to leave it to the artists Mm -hmm. to lead us does that make sense
0: yeah i i like that i think it sounds like music may light the the match but we still need to stoke the fire. Right?
1: right. Right. Agreed.
0: Yeah. No, I, I like that a lot. Um, but yeah, it's very, it's, you're right on man. I mean, I think some, some of the things that that you're talking about too is, you know, when, when things are at its worst, you know, and, and music kind of gives you that, that, that little push, that, that mm-hmm. extra charge on your battery that you need, you know, especially because yeah. it's one of those things that just inspires us so much, you know, um, you know, especially when we're at our our lowest points, you know, it's one of those things that can really bring us up, you know, and, and I think about those, those songs and and how they, they really communicate, you know, those, the, the message just the, in the most succinct and beautiful way. Right. Sure. Well, I think about Dilla, like, what is it that makes Dilla so resonant? Yeah.
1: For a generation. Why, what is it about Dilla that makes people weep? when they hear his beats and these are banging ass beats, by the way, (laughs) these are not like soft ass beats. Absolutely. But why am why? And so what I, what I tried to do in the book is to not leave it on the mystical, mythical level to really try to deconstruct what he does in his beats that evoke those things. Right. And one of the things he does harmonically to make us weep is that his sense of harmony really communicates uh, a duality of joy and melancholy. He's always going from these very, very bright chords to these very somber chords and going back and forth between them. That's the sonic material he collects and masticates and puts out. And so that's very evocative for us. It's, it has a sweetness to it. Oh, yeah. A real sweetness. Yeah.
0: I, I'm glad you, I'm really glad you point that out because, you know, Rhythmically, you know, this book is obviously, you know, it's called Dilla time. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's about the rhythm, but, right. but you know, when, if if you were to ask me what, what are the things that really like, what were the things that dug the teeth in that made me just really love Dilla? It's actually his, his bass lines and his harmony and his melody. Like, like you said, the, the way he uses sounds, uh, you know, you're right. They're very melancholy. They evoke a real emotion. And he always did that. You know, through the hardest beats to the softest beats, there was like this, Mm -hmm. you know, when I think of like the red, you know, there's this, it's a banging beat. It's so heavy, yet there's this lot, the singing, you know, the, you know, the the sample, the way he used it was just, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful song. You know what I mean? Yes.
1: Yes. Beauty. And he comes from that tradition. Uh, Another thing that I sort of uh, coined in this book, because it really, I, I couldn't think of another way to express it and I don't think anybody really had expressed it before, is that there were really two sort of strains of musical musical composition in hip-hop that emerged by the early 1990s, what I'll call beats and noise, on the one hand. Like Swiss Beats? Uh, and, and beats and beauty. Yeah. So beats and noise is sort of like the bom- Rick Rubin, mm. the bomb squad, um, very concerned with uh, dissonance and uh, you know, lots of, you know, jarring transitions and noise, literally noise, right. Mm. Bring the noise. That's what that was. That's <laughs> yeah. what we, and then qtip really along with say Prince Paul premier, right. Uh, they pioneered another way of thinking about what to do with a sampler that I'll call beats and beauty, which is instead of playing with noise and rhythm, They were playing with harmony and melody, and they were sampling records for their harmonic material as much as the rhythmic effects of it. Uh, So Benita Applebaum, to me, is a landmark record. I mean, I didn't think of it that way at the time. It was just, wow, this record is so cool and so, like, it's my favorite song on the album. But when you really look at the arc of hip hop, the arc of recorded hip hop, who had done uh, a a a soul sample like that before, who had brought brought in those kinds of jazzy cluster tone harmonies into hip hop. I, I mean, you know, I know that Premier had done a little bit with uh, Le Fleur on the first Gangstar album, but this was a whole new thing to me. So Q Tip is the progenitor of that, and of course, who inhabits that space? It's Pete Rock, it's J D, it's all of that. That is his.
0: Whence he comes. That's whence he comes. And it's cool too because you'd also talk about the BBE album and uh, mm-hmm. Peter and his trip to Detroit and, and that Welcome to Tr- Detroit record. And that also leads me to pe- the Pete Rock story. You know, And you were talking about, you know, we were talking a little bit about l- instrumental hip hop. That Pete Strimentel's album was was instru- <laughs> instrumental in, in, in my understanding of what Pete Rock could do and their relationship mm-hmm. when you talk about Dilla and Pete's relationship obviously you talk about Dilla and, and Tribe and Q tip and Ali Shaheed and, and their relationship, but you talk about Pete Rock and Dilla and it it's obviously the way that they use baselines, the way that they, they're brothers, you know what I mean? they there were so many things going on between them, you know, where they were sharing. And Spinner to a to a, a degree as well. I think, you know, Yeah,
1: shout out to Spinner, absolutely.
0: Who's you know, who's we're so lucky to have with us both, you know, Pete Rock and DJ Spinner, you know, from that making some of the most incredible records. Don't forget Diamond D. And Diamond Diamond D. Oh, my gosh. Large
1: Professor as well. Extra P,
0: yeah. Oh, man. And Lord Finesse for that matter. And Jay Swift. And Jay Swift. He was part of that tradition too. Yep. Yeah. Um, Now, there is um, another question from the audience. Um, The homie King Most out of San Francisco uh, wanted to ask... um, any, any Dilla rarities that, you know, have you been on the hunt for that you, you may have known oh. about?
1: Yeah, man. Well, you know, I don't hold out hope for this too much, but I really, really would have loved to have heard the first Frank and Dank album with the samples on it in its Oof. entirety before he yanked all the samples off of it. You know, Frank doesn't have it. Dank doesn't have it. Damn. Maureen says she has it, but I don't know if she knows what she has and what she doesn't have. Uh, Somebody told me, Shoes, I think Shoes told me that he thinks it got erased, like that Dilla just erased it. Oh my God. Which would be completely tragic. I have heard a few tracks from that album. And when I tell you, coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, listen, I think a lot of things coulda, woulda, shoulda been hits and I'm not always right, but man, Frank and Dank could have been a whole other thing if that album had come out and they're still great. I'm just saying oh, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the one that I would have. I, it, the first thing that comes to mind is that lost Frank and Dank album. The other thing is, man, I would really love to have heard what D'Angelo would have done, uh, to the beat that we now call Marvine on the on youtube like what what that song would have become if he had sung over it
0: let me see if i can find that don't uh, don't go anywhere everybody let me see if i can find that on youtube real quick
1: well you can find it on the listening guide it'll oh. be there in the partners if you scroll down to partners and you open that little thing up the plus sign okay it's there
0: I might need a link. That's
1: oh. that's what, that's so great about the listening guide, homie. I know. You got it all
0: right there for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be honest. I listened to the one on on title, um, so I'm gonna have to go into the YouTube link, um, and and well, pull it if up. Well, you only have
1: to go to the link. You just go to the Dilla time book website, yep. then click listening guide, then scroll down to the chapter that says partners. Open
0: it up. Marvine is right there. All right, give me one second here. We're gonna pull this up. I'll show you in real time how we do it on live on Twitch. Here we go. So yeah, man. this is Dilla time This is Listening Guide here. It's a great Scroll website, down. by the way, I got to say. You got the Thank official you. one.
1: So you see the chapter that says partners? Click that plus sign by it. Yep. Then I can't see it because it's a little small, but
0: somewhere
1: like a oh, third yeah. or a half the way down, you should see Marvine as one of
0: those... But you this got is it? great because we're probably not going to get any uh, DMCA strikes on this one. Come on,
1: <laughs> come on! I can hear him on this, right? <laughs> Such a, and I believe that this came out on an early promo CD, a teaser CD for Voodoo. That it was just an interlude. Wow!
0: Damn it! There's that crazy bass too. This would have been fantastic. Shout out Op. Miller in the chat. Shout out Echo Aris.
1: It's funny here's another little nerdy thing uh quest on his red bull interview played another snippet that he thought was one of the candidates for the lauren hill song oh wow um and d'angelo told me that that was never at least in his mind a candidate for a Laura. like he was gonna do feels like making love with Lauren and that had nothing to do with J.D. The reason that we think that Lauren had something to do with J.D. is that back in the day, Questlove on OK Player said J.D. did the Lauren track.
0: All right. That's in the book, too.
1: Right. But he but D'Angelo said it was first of all, the Lauren track wasn't done at the time that Quest wrote that. I, Quest was just sort of projecting into the future, thinking that it was going to get done. It didn't get done. Feels Like Making Love was all D'Angelo. And the work that James did on the album never made it onto the album. And this was one of the tracks that he
0: submitted. Oh, man. Yeah. Think about... I think about one of the things that's great is that you talk about voodoo and and how that was, for a lot of musicians, that was really like the this the golden seal of approval that needed to happen for musicians to really understand and respect you know what dilla was doing with the machine listen
1: listen go back to that play i'm going to show you something okay, go back let's to the go. playlist yeah scroll up to the chapter called dj d-e-e-j right now at the very end do you see something that says a piece of the action yes so i want to explain with this clip before you start it okay so what you're about to see here is the end of a movie uh, the movie is a piece of the action it was a sydney poitier bill cosby vehicle it's part of their trilogy that started with uptown saturday night and then let's do it again and this was the third movie so jd you know james in an interview with matt's uh mad Mats in sweden you know Matt's asked him. I must have asked him, "Where did you sort of get your 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 rhythmic sense from?" You know, these his European interviewers were always ahead of the game, always understood that he was innovative, right? And he said, James said, "Well, I must have been thinking of you know, um, Staples Singers, piece of the action." And I'm like, "Huh?" So I I, I researched the song. I find it on Spotify, and it's actually Mavis Staples. And I listen to the song, and it's a very traditional. Funk song, there's nothing, there's no rhythmic subterfuge going on in that song past regular old funk syncopation. Okay. So then I decide for whatever reason, I'm going to watch the movie. And the beginning of the movie, they play the theme song and it's same. But this is the end of the movie. This is the moment that is sort of like James DeWitt Yancey's Rosebud moment for rhythmic substitute, subterfuge. He wants to make music that sounds like this, right? Right. What they've done is they've added the sounds of claps in post, in foley, see. and the claps keep coming out of sync, in and out of sync with the beat. Sometimes they're ahead of it, sometimes they're behind it, and the sound when you hear it, just listen to it, just play it. People will start hearing it. Mm-hmm. Let's get out of those claps. Oh, Way behind the beat. Yeah. Okay, pause it for a second. So what do you hear when you hear that? Yeah, totally. I hear, I hear players. Yeah. I hear Feels Like Making Love on voodoo. I hear the sound of the future in that. That's the holy grail that he was chasing. It gets even worse after this. If you go to the playlist, you can play the whole thing. Like by the time the credits start rolling at the end and the scene you know, uh, fades out, it's crazy. But we are now living in that future. We're living in a future that sounds like this little clip because everybody, since James started emulating this, began emulating this too because they wanted to sound like James.
0: Yeah, that's crazy, man. I love it. I've actually just posted that in the chat with the YouTube playlist, the Dilla Time mm-hmm. Listening Guide by Dan Turner. But you can also get it um, by just going to the Listening Guide on on the website. Which I really, I mean, if, if you haven't read the book already, or if you, you know, uh, if you've read it already, it might even be worth just going back again and read and reading it with the sample, the sample, um, the sample uh, sorry, the listening guide. Because yeah, like it's not. You'll see here; it's not just his songs. It's also songs relevant to you know the story um the song not not only the samples but also just songs of the time and it was great you know like the George Clinton stuff you know talking a lot about you know the that time in Detroit mm-hmm. and you know when he was growing up and his father and his music I mean father was a bass player I mean it's probably not mm-hmm. that much news to a lot of people here but just the the story about his his uh, experience in the music industry I mean honestly this book is just incredible uh, Dan I yeah, I can't go on about how much I enjoyed it. Um, Thanks, bro. But, Appreciate it. But before, before before we go, I do want to play a song, uh, just an instrumental, actually. Um, now the Frank and Dank, uh, Frank and Dank album that didn't get put out. Um, do I have it on this computer? I hope I do. Uh, the push. I'm down
1: to listen to anything you got, and I hope it's one of the ones I heard before. You. If it's not, I'm gonna really hate you that you have it and I don't. <laughs>
0: Well, I was gonna, I was gonna play push then, but I don't have it on this computer unfortunately, and I don't. Let's see if we can pull it up on on title because that, yeah, it's not working for me right now for some reason. Damn. But let's let's pull up Frank and Dank. Uh, we'll pull up everybody get up because that's off. Um, that was off a of 12 inch. This I don't think it's on any album, but he flips the way he flips Ohio players on this one. Because actually, I really wanted to talk about um about Frank and Dank because I really love how you talked about his relationship with Frank and Dank in the book and their Mm -hmm. whole story. That was fascinating to me because, you know, the fact that they were just friends and, and they kind of became artists, you know, Uh, the whole story about, about them, uh, was fascinating. I I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Frank and Dank fan and I've got a a cool story with, um, with being in Toronto. Like actually I had this really great mixtape, uh, from a, a DJ out of Toronto that just played all the Frank and Dank songs and obviously most of them were produced by Dilla which blew my mind at the time because I didn't have a lot mm-hmm. of them I mean they were quite hard they were underground records you know even at the time but mm-hmm. this one this one is insane to me still to this day I love the way that, that Dilla flipped this uh, Ohio Players sample so if you don't mind we'll just play this one real quick um, I'll just take it from here mm-hmm we'll play we'll play a little bit of this everybody
1: off the wall I'ma show all y'all how to ball out ballers if you gotta let me see you by the bar out ladies throw your hands high and all my is smoking niggas getting high To all my hustling motherfuckers getting dope But if you can't spend
0: dope What you hustling for? Now I'm back to my ladies with the thoughts and tans Where'd you get Did this? Get <laughs> this is on my 12 but inch that's what we It's do. on a 12? Nasty, I yeah man knew.
1: And the dance floor got in They all made up like shaka boor Y'all send it. Niggas leave that rah rah shit at the door There's ladies everywhere that's what we came here for Remember that shit yeah we living it up The party ain't over so everybody get up Uh word And an right? so everybody get up all do it Get it up swing it around Can you imagine a whole album of this Everybody Right Like this frankendank album not coming out the same crime to me that say not ever being able to hear the group home album would be as dj premier's (laughs) finest single work of
0: production and i'll fight anybody on that (laughs) yeah i mean yeah it's it's the it's the sample the way i mean it's we all love Dilla for, for a lot of the things he did, but definitely the, the sampling stuff's insane. And, and like you said, the way they ride that beat, the sample, I mean, it's like, it's peak yep. Dilla, in, in my opinion. Yeah, if yep. you don't have this one, I'll send it your way. There's The instrumental, I got it all. So The whole 12-inch, the whole actually, of this whole 12-inch is What label songs. did that come out on? Man, I'm going to try and find it real quick. It, it's definitely one of those European ones.
1: That can't be, that can't be Groove Attack. That's not like the mummy records thing, is it?
0: Um, I'm stuck here. Uh,
1: See, but I like yeah. that we can do this and we can be informal and really talk about <laughs> the records on this. This is a good format for that.
0: Yeah. I, I, look, I, I, I know I have a Dilla section here. It's just not that organized, um, unfortunately. Give me one more minute. I'll give you I'll, I'll just talk. <laughs> 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 Thank you all for
1: coming. It's Dilla time. Uh four hundred pages available now. All you know right. we actually sold out of books, right? For a while. And yeah, back though.
0: So. Yo, I, I gotta tell you this Dan as well. Shout out Pat Lock one time. He bought he ordered a a dilatine book off Amazon and it was a fake book. I don't know if you even know about that stuff. Uh, of course I do. Damn, yeah. dude. I got it was a... <clears throat> All right. So anyway, sorry. Some um,
1: people even thought it was me that I was selling my own fake books. That's terrible. It's crazy ass shit. Okay. And there's also a fake 12 inch, by the way, that, uh, this house DJ in Detroit named Norm Tally is selling with, uh, I think Omar S did the, did the mix, but it's like they, they basically put out a 12 inch, a bootleg of Dilla beats and then slap the Dilla time sticker oh, no. with no hole for the spindle on, on it. And people are like, Hey, I love that Dilla time record. Like it's
0: not me B. Not me. <laughs> so, I found the record. Um, this isn't really... A, I'm not trying to do anything flexy, but this is actually oh! the JD record. Oh, that was uh, the same one as Love is a Thing of the Past? Like, that was the Fat Beats. Um, it's, yeah, it's This one's just um, Everybody Get Up and Give It Up 2, featuring Dilla, a.k.a. JD.
1: You know, it's so funny. There's always, like, a little hole. I find little holes in my JD oh yeah knowledge so always happy to when those holes get filled
0: and this yeah sorry i think someone in the chats were, were talking about it um it is Mc, McNasty records and it's distributed by uh, coordinated by ramos distributed by fat beats but also just since we're here and we're talking about frank dank this is the push
1: yeah, yeah this is the now push that drama. the groove attack thing you know that was um coulda shoulda woulda been another sort of label situation for james once the mca thing fell apart um but and frank i think probably could have grown into really managing that whole thing but um it was not to be because james got sick
0: uh very shortly thereafter yeah it's a real shame man hey um look i i feel like uh we've definitely taken up a lot of your time today dan and i really really ap- appreciate you know um Oh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And I'm really honored
1: uh, by everybody coming through here today. But just to even hear that uh, that brainchild was here and knowledge was here and low key and all, all, you know, all y'all was like, maybe a little nervous,
0: a little nervous. (laughs) Well, honestly, um, thank you. Honestly, thank you for your time. Thank you for the book. I really hope that we just uh, I actually also want to say thank you because you're the one of the questions I didn't get to ask you was I really love how you're you're. You're continuing the story. Like you're you're really um you're really active on Twitter. Follow Dan on Twitter if you don't already. It's yeah. a it's a sure shot. Follow Dan. And the great thing about you is that you're really and uh, you you give back to the community. You talk about it in the book. You talk about uh, donuts are forever. And I know you are part of that this year. Um, yeah. And and you know you're at Montreal loves Dilla. You know I I just love that. You know you're you're just taking it upon you. You're going to rap, Cats. You're doing this. You know what I mean. <laughs> so, thank you.
1: Yeah, well, you all are, I mean, we're all part of this community. I, don't, I come from the Dilla community, so to speak, of of fans and friends, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not really as, as I don't claim to be as involved or as rabid as, as certain folks. Like, I'm not the DJ person, I'm not the person out in the clubs, but, you know, I really, really have been thinking and writing about him for quite some time, but when I think write about him or when i write about him i'm always thinking about you all i'm always thinking about okay how can i make this good for for us and it was a challenge right to make this book good for y'all for us but also good for people who don't know a thing about dilla like my mother (laughs) um i don't think i've gotten my mother to quite finish the book yet she's a little intimidated by it but i'm still i'm holding out hope
0: but also for the next generation too, Jan- Dan, I mean, you know, like I think if there's going to be, I mean, there's always people discovering him, which is so great. And now they've yeah. got like this, they've got this kind of Bible, if you will, of, uh, you know, that they can always look to and, and reference, you know?
1: Well, thank you. I mean, you know, one of the other things I was trying to do was even though I, I really love donuts and, uh, you know, I love The Shining, I feel like I really needed to refocus folks on fantastic volume two and like water for chocolate and even fantastic volume one as being in many ways, the most crucial and welcome to Detroit as well. Right. There was a time when people weren't talking about welcome to Detroit and they were just talking about donuts. Now that we've had the 20th anniversary uh, and that special edition came out, I think welcome to Detroit is more in the conversation, but I really wanted to show folks that central time uh, of JD as being super important to understand, you know, what's the big deal about him? Yeah. Well, the big deal is he invented some shit that wasn't around before and people are still using to this day and that's big.
0: Oh yeah. And Welcome to Detroit is really such a good, like a, it's a really good uh, demonstration of the kind of multifaceted side of, of Dilla, you know, where you've got yep. him doing so many different things. So yeah. I love that Loki's in here really uh, you know, bigging up Welcome to Detroit. He says, I don't trust anyone who talks about Dilla without praising Welcome to Detroit. I am I'm here I'm for saying that. <laughs> I'm saying Yeah, I'm with it. So um is there anything else though? I mean Dan, what else what you got anything coming up that you wanna let us know about or anything that you'd like us uh, to A A lot of rest
1: at some point. <laughs> um but no, I think I'm going to be turning some of my attentions uh, back to television and podcasts while I strategize on the next on the next book. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue to to help spread the gospel of Dilla everywhere I can. I think it's important that we start talking about Dilla, not just as a beat maker, even mm-hmm. though being a beat maker is important. Um, I think it's important that we also show that one of us, right, a beat maker, actually changed the way traditional musicians play their instruments and changed our conception of musical time forever that's important and so that's what i'm going to keep doing you know in the coming months and
0: years well thank you so much dan man that's um, man, super fun yeah it is so i really enjoyed this chat uh and thank you everyone for tuning in um we're gonna take it offline right now um but uh yeah sunny james thank you for, and thank you to the mods in the chat for helping us do this Hopefully, we'll go raid someone. And if you're listening on uh, Spotify or uh, YouTube or wherever, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Make sure you follow Dan, though. Just type in the chat, exclamation point follow. You'll be able to follow his Instagram, and you'll be able to order the book, Dilla Time, right from there. Cool. All right. Peace, everyone. Peace.